When you think about applying for a practice loan, do you think about speed and simplicity? Likely not. For many veterinarians, applying for business loans can be a long and fatiguing process. Luckily, the sponsor of the podcast, Provide Inc., has changed all that. Provide is a specialty lender to the veterinary industry. They're the only, and I mean only, fully online and digital lender in the veterinary space, which makes life easy. You know I go on and on, and I'm so pro-practice ownership. I cannot be happier to have Provide be a sponsor. Whether you're in Maine or California, Provide can help. They aren't going to require you to open your savings account or jump through some hoops to get some sort of relationship discount on your loan. They're simply just going to say, here's our rate, this is the process, and we're going to do a good job. Provide uses innovative software and technology coupled with excellent service and an industry experience to deliver something that's just more efficient. Even on very complicated transactions, Provide can make a decision on whether they're going to lend in a mere five to seven business days. As we all know, time is money and having those answers quickly matters. Provide offers financing for practice acquisitions, buy-ins or buy-outs, commercial real estate, refinancing, practice remodels, all that stuff. Anything that you have around financing for your veterinary clinic and your business, they can help you with. So when you think about it, you can pre-qualify in minutes with no effect on your credit score. That's a benefit as well. For more information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see a hyperlink under the provide bio. That'll get you directly to where you can pre-qualify. You can do it on your couch. You can do it in 10 minutes or less. And if you do want to reach out directly to them, please let them know that I sent you. They'll take great care of you and they will be alongside you for one of the biggest purchases of your life and do a great job at it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lenny Kaplan, who is a veterinarian that has worked in private practice in emergency medicine for close to 20 years. She is currently a faculty professor at Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. In 2017, she earned her professional life coach designation. I love her taglines. I'm going to bring it up right here, which is practical and pragmatic. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So I really want to start with maybe more of a fun slash strange question that most people are going to hear and be like, what in the heck is this guy talking about? But you mentioned something around stew in veterinary medicine, and it was a really good analogy. So let's jump in. And can you share a little bit around the meaning behind that? Yeah. So one beautiful thing about veterinary medicine, of course, is the many facets of veterinary medicine that you can go into, right? So there's private practice, there's academia, there's government, large animal, small animal, exotics, wildlife, etc. So I look at veterinary medicine as pick your favorite ingredient. That can be your protein, which could be like small animal, large animal, etc. But then you have to add a lot of other ingredients, right? Like you have to be able to make sure that you are maintaining work-life balance and that you're self-caring for yourself the way you need to be self-cared for and how you define self-care, not how someone else does it. And basically you can make the stew that you want. You can create the job, the life that you want way more than you think. A lot of people think they don't have control. I'm employed by so-and-so. I work with so-and-so and that's what I have to do. But that is not true. That is not true. So you can basically sit back, step back and say, do I want to add a little bit more spice to that? Or do I want to make it a little bit more bland? And it's completely up to the veterinarians. And veterinary medicine obviously can be a tough field, but you can make it as fun and as enjoyable as you want to. And I just want to make sure people know that. Well, I think that it kind of naturally leads into talking a little bit around, and we'll use the same analogy around Stu, but just kind of your journey and kind of how you learned and realized some of those things 
yourself as you went through your career? Because you've went from in kind of clinical practice. Now you're at Cornell, you have the coaching. So to me, that's like, okay, so maybe it's adding some other variations that stew or spices. So maybe share your career path and what you've seen. Yeah. So I went into clinical practice. I knew all through vet school that that's what I wanted to be was a general practitioner. And honestly, I did fall in love with emergency and critical care. That has always stolen my heart. That's my favorite piece. And I did that for 10 years. The hours were long. And the biggest reason I kind of stepped back from it was I had a commute about two hours one way (laughs) to work a 14-hour shift. And after 10 years and big snowstorms, I was like, you know, I think I'm done. So I moved into private practice, just private general practice. And again, I love it. I love it for the animals. I'm mostly in veterinary medicine for the animals, but I also really, really feel for the pet owners because I know how stressful it is when our pets get sick and we're in the field. I know how stressful it is for the client. So that's what I enjoy. But it has a lot of challenges, right? So there's the challenges of long hours. There's the challenges of trying to make all of your clients happy and it doesn't always work. Or of course, working against financial challenges, et cetera. Or honestly, sometimes you have tough bosses and things that could improve workflow. They don't really want to implement for whatever reason. And I was getting frustrated with the field. I'm just going to be completely honest. And I was second guessing, did I actually want to be a veterinarian? Because I just felt like I was having more not good days than good days. And I hit a point where I was like, what am I doing? And do I want to do this? And I found a life coach And that was life-changing for me because it really just changed my mindset and my perspective and how I was approaching things. And I realized that I have way more control over my life than I ever thought. And now I do. I do. I feel like this is a confession. I love being a veterinarian. I love working with the animals. I love working with people who also love the animals. And I love pet owners who love their animals. It's a really fun job. And again, I discovered all of this partially while I was working at Cornell's when I went for my actual certification. But that's been life-changing because now I'm happier at work, which frankly means I'm also happier at home. I enjoy my time off when I'm away from work a lot more than I used to. And this is something that I want to make sure gets out there and that other veterinarians know this because you can totally have a successful career both at work and outside of work. By being a veterinarian, if you step back and realize what you can control and don't kind of fall into the black hole of what the career can pull you into. Yeah, I love that. And another thing that you shared that I loved, and I don't know if it's on the website or where or how when we chatted that it came out, but it was that you changed and not the work. Yes. And I think that was really powerful. And I wanted to kind of hear from you if that was a revelation that happened more during coaching, if that was after you kind of went and got certified yourself. But just, I guess, unpack that a little bit because I thought that was profound. Yeah, no, I'm going to say actually both, right? So the coaching for sure, and that's what a lot of coaching is really, is like focusing on you and realizing like, what do you have control about and what mindset are you falling into that's allowing certain things to happen in your life? So the coaching completely opened up my eyes to it. And the certification, it did put the cherry on top, but I don't know, honestly, if that was a result of the actually getting certified or was that just the continued work on self? Because even now, as much progress as I've made, there's always like little things that come up and I'm like, oh, I want to work on that mindset and be able to even take this a little bit further. But yeah, that's so true. So you can have a certain 
way of approaching things or a certain way, let's say even if it's with coworkers and you feel like you always have one or two coworkers you don't really get along with, but that happens at every place you go to, you can't control and change the coworkers, but you can control and change how you respond to those coworkers. Maybe these are coworkers that need you to be a little bit more handholdy or need you to walk in and be like, hello, sunshine every morning. And honestly, that's a little tiny thing. And if you do that and it makes them feel 10 times better, and then they're a hundred times easier to work with, and then work is more fun and you don't go home mentally exhausted and drained at the end of the day. Now you're more available for your family or your friends. And you're not like all like, I can't even talk anymore. That to me is life-changing because who wants to get up and just sort of go into the rat race, so to speak, when it does not have to be that way. Absolutely. Kind of building on that, and then we'll switch to some of the other topics that I think will be interesting to get into, is just the idea of stress management. And I think what you just talked about is one of those things where you can bring on some of that stress based on how you're handling the situation, but also then maybe take some of that stress off by the way that you handle it. Can you touch a little bit around maybe where you see a lot of veterinarians struggle with stress management or ways that maybe they can improve or think through that? Yeah. So I do feel, and I'm saying this as someone who's been there, done that, (laughs) that a lot of our stress is often self-directed. And again, it's because we tend to try and be people pleasers and we never put ourselves first and we do things that we may not even feel comfortable doing. And instead of doing something simple, like saying, you know what, thank you so much for asking that. Unfortunately, I won't be able to do it period, or no, I'm not going to do that. And by setting really high expectations of yourself, which are not even realistic, you end up adding a lot of stress onto you. And then again, that makes you more stressed and edgy at work. So maybe you're going to be a little bit less tolerant with the pet who won't sit still or the technician who forgot one little tiny thing because they were also juggling 10 plates in the air. So you snap at them that puts them in a bad mood. And then everything just becomes this like ripple effect. Whereas if you can step back and make sure you're doing self-care and you are decompressing and rebooting and really saying like, even if you agreed to do something you didn't want to do, call the person or text them and be like, hey, something came up. I can't do it. Period. We all think our brains like make these huge mountains out of molehills and we act like, oh my goodness, if I don't do what I said I was going to do, the world is going to like fall in and the sky is going to fall down. That never happens. (laughs) We always make up what we think is the worst case scenario and that is never what happens. So this again is just sort of making it so that you're in a place where you can realize this, step back and make a change. And that can just make all of the difference. How do you decompress today? Do you have anything that you do consistently? Whether it's, I guess, just I don't want to lead it. I have a list of things. Okay, here you go. (laughs) Perfect. I almost started like thinking of ideas. I'm like, no, I don't want to lead it in any sort of direction. I just want to hear what you want to say. No, I can tell you exactly how I decompress. And by the way, I just want to make it clear. This is how I decompress. Yes. Everyone does it differently. And I will even give an example of a very unique situation of decompression. So my number one way of decompressing is getting good sleep. So I'm like a four-year-old. And if I don't get like a good... I won't lie, like nine hours of sleep a night, I might as well not go to sleep at all. Seven hours is the absolute minimum. So anyone who's going on less than seven hours, I have no idea how you do that. So that's the first thing for sure. I love exercising. It really emotionally resets me. It physically resets me. 
I'm a runner. So I run just as little factoids. I run 11 half marathons and I'm hoping to run my 12th this coming fall. I'm getting older now. So I have to do cross training in order to stay injury free. So I also do like yoga, strength training, cardio, basically anything that physically exhausts me also kind of clears my brain emotionally. I'm also a crocheter. So I love to crochet. So I'm doing that. I'm still a novice. I'm only like three years into the crochet career. So haven't made any super fancy projects, but I do do that. I love reading whether or not it be fiction or nonfiction. So that's just like a small snapshot of how I self-care. And when I do those things, it makes me feel so much better. I have a colleague who recently had to actually go and support a friend of hers, honestly, who was going through a tough time with their pets. And it wouldn't seem like that was a self-caring, decompressing thing for her, but she's such a loving compassionate person. And it was so fulfilling to her to be able to go and support someone through that tough time, that that was a form of self-care for her. And it actually would have been a worse thing for her emotionally and physically if she wasn't able to go and do that. So really finding the things that feed your soul is what I call it, whatever your soul food is, that is what you need to do to self-care and decompress. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic and gives people an idea. And I, it makes me feel like a very boring person when I always ask like people, when people ask like hobbies or what they do, you're, uh-huh. I don't have that much that I do. I feel like a boring person, but yeah. So 12 half marathons. 11 so far. Got it. I'm hoping 12 is going to be it. in the fall. Yes. Yes. Which I don't even know if they're going to be in person or not because of the whole COVID thing, but I'm secretly hoping it will be in in person because it's really fun to cross the finish line and get the bling. I think that's the real reason I do it is the bling. But yeah. (laughs) I love that. Well, in the fact that you just have a lot of people around that are supporting other people, like just the energy of that versus trying to go out and do it by yourself or running that in your neighborhood or your area. And it's just, yeah, I know I'm not a runner. People always ask like, oh, you look like you'd be really good at running. Like, no, I hate running. It's one of those things I cannot get behind. I keep trying to tell myself I should do that. Well, if you ever want to get interested, this is a good reason to run. It's not only the bling at the end of the finish line, but the signs that people hold up along the run are so clever and so witty and hysterical sometimes. And some of them will even have like a funny, in a good way, good hearted, like political twist or this or that. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just don't have that creativity in me. (laughs) So just for that, you might want to consider running. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Let's talk about practice myths. So there are certain things that, and I would say I've certainly learned a ton just through this podcast. And you talked about it from the top about veterinary medicine. There's just so many different avenues and areas to get into. It's not just clinical practice, but what are some of the practice myths that you see that maybe people just accept at face value that maybe they don't question, or even some that you might say would be more controversial if your peers were like, oh, yeah, I don't or I do believe that that absolutely is something that's true. And you're like, mm, not really. Oh, my God. <laughs> so one thing I should say about me, but this has been actually part of my own self-discovery and growth and coaching is I question everything. Right. So when you're like three years old, your parents tell you X and X and we take every single thing at face value and we just do it and we never question it. And I used to do that in veterinary medicine. And now I like question everything. And I'm like, no, don't do that. It's fine, et cetera, et cetera. So my favorite example, which my colleagues at work would laugh about is the exam table 
myth. (laughs) So I feel like that's one of the many, many things in veterinary medicine that we've been doing since 1850 that was extrapolated from humans. So humans, you go to the doctor and they have you sit on the exam table. Fine. I do not like exam tables. The animals don't like exam tables. So here's my opinion about exam tables is that at home, your animal is trying to jump up on the table or the counter and you're constantly like, get off, you know, and you're screaming and pushing them and spritzing them with water. And you're basically making them going on the table, not a very positive thing. Then they come to the vet hospital where there's different people, strange lighting, the smells and odors of other animals. And then we bring them in and we plop them on the very thing that they're getting yelled at about all of the time at home. So I don't like exam tables. I should mention in fairness that I'm like 5'2", barely. So it's even hard for me to examine the bigger dogs on exam tables. So I do everything on the floor. We have two exam rooms actually where the table will flip up. It's a flip up table. So you can flip it up and then I call it a little studio apartment. And I basically get on the floor and the animals love it. They're comfortable on the floor. We do blood draws. We do their vaccinations. We do the physical exams. Everything is on the floor. So that's one myth. I don't understand why we even have exam tables. I wish we would work harder on getting like maybe yoga mats and things so that dogs that have trouble with the flooring have a little bit of traction. They don't tend to slip. That's one thing. One of my other, I do for sure (laughs) in surgery, I challenge a lot. Like even some of the stuff they're still teaching today. I'm like, nope, don't do that. That is inefficient. And it kind of makes everything very clunky and not smooth. I have different opinions on when animals should eat before surgery. Honestly, sometimes I have my patients eat like a third of their meal the morning of surgery. And I'll tell you why. So For whatever reason, and again, I don't know if this is from humans, they're like, eat dinner and then don't eat for like 12 hours, which sounds good in theory, but usually the clients will feed their pets at like 5 or 6 p.m., which means the next morning by 6 a.m., you're already 12 hours from a meal, and now they first have to get dropped off at the hospital, so now it's 8 or 9 a.m., so now you're 15 hours since a meal, and then by the time they have surgery, etc., you're going on like 20 hours without eating. And that alone makes you feel kind of unsettled and not good. And then I feel like those animals go home and then they don't want to eat right away because they have the effects of anesthesia. Plus they haven't eaten in like 20 hours. And I don't think that that's fair to them. And I don't think it's necessary. I know we worry about like vomiting or regurgitation or aspiration, but I have to be honest, I have barely, barely ever have those problems. Again, I'm not having them eat like a 10 pound bag of dog food and then come in for surgery three hours later. And if I know that they're my first procedure of the day, I tell people you can feed them up until about 11 p.m. or midnight. Again, so by the time we're done with our procedure, we're already feeding them. It's only been maybe like a 12-hour fast. And that's more like what would happen on their normal daily routine. So that's another myth. I'll try to keep thinking of some more. It was funny. One day at work, I was like, oh, here's something else I challenge. Here's something else I challenge. And at the moment, I'm blanking on a few others. No, I think those two are great. And the thing that you said about just questioning things, you know, the mind of a child or someone that's younger that's trying to understand, being curious is something that we should not lose. And there's so many different things around, this could be a huge tangent, but just education in general and the way that people are taught through school, whether it's in college, whether it's in high school, whether it's in middle school, it's like the ability to learn and understand and ask questions and challenge things is super important that people should not lose. And regardless, that's applicable for every single person, every single industry always is is to be curious and ask and try to understand that because just because it's done 
this way since, like you said, 1850s. Like there's not maybe a reason for that other than right. we've just done it this way before. It's like why, why does that continue to be the case? So exactly. And yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to question what is being told. And there could be some very good reasons for it, right? But you want to make sure yeah. you have clarity. Exactly, exactly. And if you have a really good reason that I really understand, I'll be like, oh, thank you for bringing that up. And I will totally run with it. But I won't lie. I'm like super crazy right brained. Like everything has to make sense to me. <laughs> and things that don't make sense to me, which frankly is a lot, I just question constantly. Because you know what? We're all humans. And the people that have set up these rules, they were humans. And they also lived in a different time. So it made sense during their time when they didn't know better. But we know so much more and we know so much more that we're capable of. So, yeah. And just switching gears a little bit and thinking about you being such an advocate for thinking about veterinary medicine and challenging the assumptions and getting better at what veterinarians deliver. I think part of being a faculty member is about like preparing people for what's there in the future and resolving some of the tension and challenges that a veterinary team might face. And communication has come up a couple of times in this podcast, and it was something that you brought up as well. And you gave a talk to a VBMA chapter, I believe, earlier this year, and it was all around communication and solving some of the problems. I think you said there was like a three-step kind of yeah. process. So I wanted to, as long as I was right with the three steps, can you break that down or kind of give us an overview of what that looks like and some of the things that you've learned? Yes. So this is funny. I don't know if you've heard this before, but everyone in veterinary medicine says that they are great communicators. <laughs> um, and then on the flip side, you hear about 800 clients that were like, my vet never told me that. And granted, they may not have heard it. And there's always two sides to every story. But I think most of us are not as good as we think we are. So my big three-step process, and then make sure to ask me about Dr. Sherlock Holmes, because that's sort of related, but not part of the three-step process. So the three-step process for me, for really doing the best service for the patient and doing the best service for the client and not having mistakes and not having people angry and not having misunderstandings. This is my three-step process. The first one is for sure, build trust. So building trust, it kind of sounds second nature, but I think a lot of people don't do that. And when I mean build trust, don't just run into the exam room and start jibber jabbering to the client, even saying, oh, hi, Mrs. Smith, how are you today? Right there, the client's like, oh my God, this person actually cares about me and listening to them and even doing some reflective listening. So if the client is like, oh, it's, I think he's been limping and having some trouble walking, they're like, oh, it sounds like he is maybe not walking normally. Tell me more about that. And basically being open-minded. And if a client seems snippy or angry, don't jump right back at them. Just remember that maybe something awful happened to them before they showed up. And if you show a titch of compassion to them, that's going to redirect the trajectory of how that visit is going to flow. And again, how we're going to make a decision. So the first one is build trust. And I'm condensing this, obviously. The second one is what I call gather and share information. So this is where, again, make sure you're asking a lot of good questions from the owner. Make sure you're gathering information like, and I'll use my students a little bit as an example. They'll come to tell me what they've gleaned from the owner. And just from what they're telling me, I have more questions. Until I know those answers, I don't even know how to proceed. And I point this out to the students and tell them it's so crucial that you get the information we need in order to make a decision. And the also thing is, when I say gather and share information, I also want them to ask the owners, like, let's say you're thinking, oh, this animal may have to go home with a medication. 
you need to make sure what can the owner do at home? What is the owner willing to do at home? What are they able to do at home? Because if you know, if the owner's like, there's no way I can pill this animal, then sending them home with tablets is not going to work, right? So there's no point to doing that. So that would be the second step is gather and share information. And then the third step is make a plan, plain and simple, make a plan, make sure it's collaborative. And this is where you and the owner have discussed whatever's going on with Fluffy, for example. And now together, you're going to decide these are the options we're facing based on my professional expertise. This is what I'm recommending. And then listen to the client's thoughts. And again, maybe you think, oh, we should hospitalize this pet and put them on IV fluids or do this and that. But if the client really can't afford that, or it's going to be a stretch, or the owner's just not up for that at the moment, that's fine. Like as long as you've educated them. So you ultimately make a plan with the owner that both the owner and you are comfortable with, if that makes any sense. So for me, it's an easy three-step process. It's a little bit more involved, but basically build trust, gather and share information, and then make a plan in a collaborative fashion. Done. And if you do those three things, I don't see how you can run into problems. Yeah, I love that. So my natural follow-up question is, tell me about Dr. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dr. Sherlock Holmes. And I do honestly, and I'm not sure why this is, but I worry about this as a trend. And this is sort of what I was mentioning about the students. Like, let's say the owners come in for like their pet's annual health exam and they're like, oh, you know, what is he eating and how's he doing? And are you using this and that? And then the owner's like, oh, by the way, he vomits four times a week. And the students are like, okay, because their brain is like, oh, he's coming here for his annual health exam. And they don't even dive deep into the, what do you mean he's vomiting four times a week? Like, can you imagine if we did that out of the clear blue? You'd be like, hello, doctor, I need an appointment. So Dr. Sherlock Holmes is you have to keep asking and keep diving deeper until you feel like you really understand this case. Like, when is the pet vomiting? What are they vomiting? Did you change the diet? Like, start going a little bit deeper and making sure. And again, Dr. Sherlock Holmes is when you're deciding what medication I'm going to send home or what diet. Let's say you want to send home a canned food diet for whatever reason. And the owner's like, I don't like the smell of canned food, which many of them don't, by the way. Okay, fine. So the canned food is going to be off the table. But if you don't do your job and get that information, so I tell every owner, Pretend you're Dr. Sherlock Holmes, and I want you to ask all the questions you need to at any point during the visit, when you're taking the history, when you're wrapping up at the very end and discharging them. And sometimes owners are like, my goodness, you ask a lot of questions. And I just laugh it off and I'm like, I do. I'm Dr. Sherlock Holmes. I said, I'm sorry for interrogating you, but the more information I get, the better of a job I do. So that's my Dr. Sherlock Holmes plug. Absolutely. And just going on that point where you have them feeling like, oh, I feel like I'm getting interrogated, or maybe they have slight bit of embarrassment when you're at that annual exam, and maybe they feel like they haven't done a great job. Going back to communication, I guess I see this a little bit in talking with like finance with people where maybe they're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, you can't change the past, right? Like you can only make the adjustments moving forward. But how do you, and maybe this is just a simple answer, but how do you then make them feel like I'm not judging you, even though that's what their biggest fear is that they're told that they're a bad pet owner. Isn't that part of it too? So do you have any good advice there? Because I feel like that would definitely be something, again, I've never been a veterinarian, but I have been to a veterinarian before where it's like, oh yeah, I should be doing that. Like, man, I obviously not doing what I should, right? Oh yeah. So for starters, I do exactly what you do. I tell the veterinarian, listen to me, I tell the client, you're not a bad pet owner. I said, you're here now. And that's exactly what I focus on. I'm like, you know what? 
maybe this would have turned out differently had you come earlier, but I don't have a crystal ball. And all I care about right now is that you're here. And thank you so much for caring. And thank you so much for bringing Fluffy in. And that's all I care about. And honestly, the other thing I do often, and this is true, because in addition to being a vet, I'm a pet owner. And I think I can speak for most vets (laughs) that I don't come home after a long day and do full physical exams on my animals. I just don't. And 90% of the ailments that we have diagnosed in my own pets, my husband found because he plays and pets and touches them all the time. I come home and I'm like, please leave your mother alone. She's tired. She's had pets all day. And he finds them. And honestly, I We have found tumors and masses and cancer, and I never would have found them if it wasn't for my husband. So I I tell that to them. I'm like, hey, don't feel bad. I'm a veterinarian, and this is how I learned about X in my own pet, because it's the truth. And animals are also the masters of disguise, which I remind owners too, right? I would say cats almost more than dogs, like they'll be feeling pretty yuck and they just won't say anything until they're really sick. And then by the time we're clued in, we're like, oh, wow, he's really sick. And there's so many owners like, you know, she stopped eating like three days ago. But when you start to like look at the weight, what their current weight is, and you start to listen to the history, you realize, you know what? Her appetite's been decreasing slowly over time, but you live with them every day. So let's say they stop eating five kibbles from six weeks ago, every single day, they're eating five less kibbles. Yeah, then, you know, five weeks later, but that illness you wouldn't have known about. So I remind owners of that as well. And we all do the best we can do. And there is no judgment. And that's the building trust. My first step of the process is, even if in your mind, you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't you come in earlier? Remember that A, these people are not trained in veterinary medicine, right? That's why they're coming to you. I always tell when I make up clients for role-playing, I'm like, pretend he's an architect knows nothing about science, like why would they know this? We wouldn't expect them to. And then the other thing is, especially in today's world, we all are juggling so many plates, so many plates. And again, if the animal seems to be stable and doing okay, but your kid is having some school issue or this or that, you have to prioritize. And sometimes in the list of triage, the seemingly healthy pet falls lower and that's understandable. That's no fault and blame. Again, you're here today. That's all that I care about. That's what's most important. What other soft skills do you view as being kind of pillars of success for the future of veterinarians as they continue to grow, even those that are maybe coming out of school, but those that have been in practice for a while? Even the ones that have been in practice for a while, I think the biggest soft skill, honestly, is self-compassion. It sounds a little bit weird, but I think we tend to really... Even ones that have been out for 10 years, like we blame ourselves half the time more than the clients blame ourselves. And we really take things personally. And you know what? That's not going to help anyone. It brings you down. And again, it does everything we talked about before. It impacts what your life is like both at work and outside of work. So I think for sure, not taking things personally is a huge one. Having self-compassion Being able to say no and prioritize yourself, holy Moses, that's like a huge one because I think that's a big downfall. You really have to just put yourself first. And isn't it funny? Like who is going to put you first if it's not you? It's the funniest thing ever. Like is someone else going to put me before them? Probably not. (laughs) And yes, we're in a very caring profession. That's why we're veterinarians. But the problem is if you're not going to take care of the carer, then we're not going to be able to take care of everyone else. Absolutely topic, item, thing that's on your heart that you feel like is really important that maybe I haven't asked about yet that you think would be good to build upon or share? 
I think the one big thing which I probably mumbled to you before is that I really want everyone to embrace who they are so that we say that you do you, but I really, really believe you do you. So again, going back to the 1850s and since then, we've learned for some reason to allow other people to set the bar of what makes us a good vet or what makes us make a good decision or what makes us a good person or an okay person for saying no and taking time or just turning away that one last appointment because you just are at your maximum and embracing like who you are and doing what works for you. I think we all live up to like, oh, well, this person had whatever was a PhD and wrote 800 papers. And because I haven't done that, I'm no good. And it's so not true. Everyone has their own gifts and their own strengths to bring to the table. And no one ever pays attention to their own strengths. They're so busy pointing out and wallowing over their weaknesses. But I don't think they're weaknesses. They're just areas where you're not as strong. But you should really celebrate those as well as your strengths. That's going to make you the best person you can be. That's going to let you be the happiest person you can be, both at work and at home. I love that. Usually, one of the things I do in closing, and I might not have prompted you this, so we'll see what happens, (laughs) is I always ask guests. I swiped this from another podcast I really like. It's, is there a question you'd like to ask me or anything that is just of curiosity from your perspective on anything, whether from my personal, professional, this podcast in general, anything that you'd like to ask? Well, you said that you don't have a lot of hobbies, but what is your top fun thing to do when you're not working? I would say it is, I've always been a big sports person. I think that is it. So it's more of like the hobby of watching or reading, just like interacting from a sports perspective. So it's that. And we do have a son that's going to turn two in a month. So, I mean, that's more or less probably between the two things outside of work and and just hanging out with my wife. Like I always say, I'm kind of a boring person. I just don't do a lot of, I'm not a craft brewer. I don't woodwork. I don't do like, I have so many different friends that do all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I don't do any of that. So <laughs> it's like, I, I guess I'm boring. That's okay. That's totally okay. Do you like one particular sport or are you like a sports anything in season? (laughs) It's I just in general like sports, but yeah, I definitely follow. And I think I've shared this before on the podcast, but I follow AS Roma soccer, which is Serie A, so it's Italian soccer. And it's only because my wife and I, who are both fairly sports people, we on our honeymoon were just like, hey, let's go see it. I never watched a soccer, like I'd never gotten soccer, didn't play it growing up. And now that is like something that's very, it's oddly weird that I'm that passionate about it now. I just went once in person and just the feeling of it and just seeing it and also just being us two, the only two and didn't know anyone else, but you have all these people and everyone just the pageantry of it was really cool. And then I think I've mentioned this before and it's behind me as well, but like I've been a, I grew up in Indiana, but I've always been a diehard Florida Gator fan. So football, basketball, baseball, all that sports. So it's going to happen at some point, but I've always joked, like I want to go down to veterinary school at at U of F and talk. So it's on the bucket list and I'll tie it in with uh, some sort of sporting event, I'm sure at some point, if I can make it work to go down and talk and do that. So if anyone's listening, that is a U of F grad or wants to make that happen, just let me know. (laughs) You won't twist my arm too hard. (laughs) No, that sounds great. Yeah. So that's really it. But you know, maybe I'll start to embrace other things. And there are certain things that come to mind, but I feel like coming back to some of the things that you mentioned, it's like the idea of living to work or working to live, that whole idea of just making sure you take time to enjoy like, and I've heard this from other people in different professions of like, oh yeah, you spend all that time and you say it's for your family, but then you like neglect the people that you say you care about the most. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yes. So just trying to be cognizant mm-hmm. of that as I've been very blessed and fortunate to be able to do what I do, but also retain 
again, like you said, you don't have to do everything for everybody. You don't have to say yes to everything. And mm-hmm. sometimes you do have to say no, even if it is a good opportunity because you just don't have the bandwidth or time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess and some that's of that okay. It's me too. Right? That's like, okay. You're talking to the people to listen to this. I'm like, oh yeah, Isaiah needs to hear that too. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this it goes for more than veterinarians, but obviously they're my people. So I totally get it with them. And I thank you so much for sharing what you just said. And I want to also just like emphasize that point because I didn't make it as clear as you did, but you really have to step back and look at your priorities. And in five years, are you going to care about the cat who had a torn dew claw that was otherwise fine, but you missed whatever your son's soccer game or something similar? Or are you going to be like, you know what? That's not emergent. It can wait till tomorrow. I'm actually going to not be late for dinner again. And honestly, if you need to, if you feel like it, put dinner with family on your appointment book. And it's a non-negotiable. Why would that be any different than a pet patient appointment? And just put it on there and just tell them, really sorry, I'm booked. I can't go. And really, really prioritize what's important to you. So I would have to say family and friends and self-care should really be those top three. And then work is sort of a bonus. And I should point out, by default, we spend way more time at work than we, like I spend way more time with the people I work with than with my husband on during my waking hours. So it's perfectly fine for you to like set a very strict cutoff time and say, done for the day, that's it. And now I'm moving on to my personal life and feel no guilt. Don't check emails. Don't respond to texts. My thing is on vibrator silent 90% of the time. And it's okay. You don't have to answer every text with every vet question. Because if that's the case, half of us would never sleep and never have a day off. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. And that's why I love those questions because sometimes it gets like the conversation back into something that maybe we've touched on. Yeah. So appreciate the question. For those that are listening that want to connect, learn more, just hear other things that you're doing, is there a best place that you'd send them if they wanted to chat on different topics? Like how do they engage? How would someone connect with you? How do you want me to send them your way, I guess? Oh, how will you send them my way? I'm going to probably give you my website and my IG handle, and both are pretty much the same. <laughs> so they're www.lkaplancoaching. So there's no spaces, and I just put lkaplan, K A P L A N coaching.com. And my IG handle is at lkaplancoaching. Perfect. I will link those to the show notes as well, but. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me. This was truly a pleasure. And yeah, appreciate you sharing your insight and information with us. Absolutely. Veterinarians out there, you rock. You rock. Even if you feel like you don't rock, I hope they know that. Yeah. And definitely reach out to me for support. Or if I can't help you, I can always, I'm sure at this point, I can find someone who can help you. And Isaiah, it has actually been a pleasure for me as well. So thank you for the invite onto the podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, 
please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.